Well, as we begin this morning, we're going to be looking at Romans uh, 2. As If you got my email yesterday, I said we were going to be covering verses 12 through 29. I was a little overzealous. Uh, we'll be going through 24 today. But I'm going to start with verse 11 to kind of set the context. So if you have your Bibles, let's open it and follow along as we read God's inspired, inerrant, infallible word together. Romans 2, beginning in verse 11. For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires... They are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on the day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know His will and approve what is excellent because you're instructed from the law... And if you are sure you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Now, initially, the reason I wanted to read verse 11 was to really set the context. I know that was covered two weeks ago by Dr. Van Dudeward, but we want to begin there because it shows that God is not a partial God. Indeed, He cannot be a partial God, for to show partiality would be sinful, to prefer, show favoritism, and exhibit an unfair bias toward someone or something is opposed to God's character and nature. God doesn't show favoritism, particularly as it relates to His judgment. We read in Deuteronomy ten seventeen: For the Lord your God is the God of God and the Lord of lords, the great and mighty, the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. So it's in this context that we get into verse 12, where we see God judging both the Jew and the Gentile. We read in verse 12 again, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. That's the Gentile. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. That's the Jew. So we have two distinct groups of sinners here. We have the Gentiles on the one hand, and we have the Jews on the other. The Gentiles will perish though they have not received the law. Why is that based on this passage? And also what we know that Paul has written previous to this in Romans 1. Well, the answer to that is general revelation. Remember we said in, in Romans 1 that they, though they may not have heard the Word of God proclaimed, one is without excuse because you cannot look out and see the handiwork of God without proclaiming, wow, how did that get there? It must have been God. And so as Paul writes in one, Romans 1.20, they are without excuse. And so the unbeliever will perish even without the law 
because they have not acknowledged God, given their lives over to him and sought to live for him. But what about the Jew? The Jew, meaning the religious ones, will be held accountable and judged by the law. So verse 13 continues, For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. So for the Jew, they will still be judged by the law, for this is God's perfect standard of righteousness. Remember when Adam and Eve were created in the Garden of Eden, there was the covenant of works in place, right? Such that they were to perfectly obey God's perfect standard of righteousness. How did they do? They failed. How would we have done back then? Well, we would have failed too, probably sooner than they would have been, than they did. So because of that, they failed. And so because of that, the original sin is the effects of the fall, which means we now are born in a state of sin and, mis- and misery. So we're depraved. So we cannot, in our own strength, be perfectly righteous and live perfectly as under the law. But Jesus did. Right? So Jesus came as the perfect substitute who perfectly obeyed the standard of righteousness, every jot, every tittle of the law, and by believing and having faith in him and through his shed blood on the cross, he has imputed his righteousness to us to help us live according to our calling in Christ. But then notice in verse 13 this concept of only hearing the law and not being motivated to live or to be transformed by it. It's much like as John MacArthur would describe the college student who audits a class. Now you may know one who audits a class is one who hears the material only but is not expected to uh, be held accountable to it. They're not quizzed on the material. They're not tested on the material. However, one who is taking the same class for credit will be tested, will be held accountable for what he or she has learned in the class. What's the point here? The point is that we as Christians cannot be auditors of the Bible. We've got to be serious students, diligently working through the Word of God by the help of the Holy Spirit to be held accountable and to do that which he's taught us through his word. So people that just merely go to church or even listen to sermons online or even sign up for Bible studies but do not have transforming change in their lives are really deluding themselves. James warns if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, He is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror, for he looks at himself, goes away, and at once forgets what he was like. James 1, 23 through 24. The idea here is that he is judging himself by himself rather than judging himself by the perfect standard of the Word of God. On the other hand, the doer is one who hears the Word of God, comes to God in saving faith, seeking by the help of the Holy Spirit to live according to the law that God might be glorified in our lives. Now, to be sure, our works, our deeds don't produce justification. Justification is by what? Faith alone. 
Martin Luther and others fought for it, as we'll talk about more with the uh, Protestant Reformation coming up. But Scripture makes it clear, justification comes by faith alone. However, our works done after we are justified in the Spirit as Christians bear evidence of the fact that we are saved. So I like to say it this way, our works justify or prove our justification. This is an important question, though, as we just kind of think about. There's some important questions here uh, to think about in your own life. Are we growing? Are you changing? Am I changing by hearing the Word of God preached? By reading the Word of God in our homes with our families? By reading and digesting and contemplating the Word of God personally as we personally study the Word of God? Has your holiness, your your sanctification increased since this time last year or maybe five years ago? Has the Word of God become more and more precious to you? Are you delighting in it? See, if you answer yes to these questions, then you're not only hearing the Word of God, but you're allowing the Spirit to do a great transforming work in your life to then live it out for the glory of God. Well, Paul then moves in verses 14 and 15 to discuss in more detail the Gentiles or the unrighteous, if you will. And he really points out four main reasons why the heathen are lost. I'm going to go through this fairly quickly. First, they reject the knowledge of God they receive through his creation. We've already talked about that. They see the handiwork of God, but they continue to, they continue to refuse it and refuse to God who created it. Second, their conduct based on the work of the law written on their hearts, verse 15, condemns them. Now, an unbeliever can do good things. Is that true? Yeah. We know plenty of unbelievers who are honest in their business. They're faithful in their marriages. They're not a gossip or a slander. They're not given to anger. They're generous to those in need. But these good deeds done by the unbeliever do nothing. They do nothing to save them. In fact, those good works, as stated here in Romans, actually condemn them. Why is that? MacArthur writes, the fact that such people did good things, knowing they were ethically good, proves they had knowledge of God's law written on their hearts. Therefore, if those people never come to trust in the true God, their good deeds will actually witness against them on the day of judgment. What's he saying there? There are decent people that do good. Do they have the wrong motivation? Yes, because it's not to glorify God. And they even understand the difference between right and wrong. But they're still refusing God. (coughs) Thirdly, the unbeliever is condemned because of conscience. In verse 15 we read, while their conscience also bears witness. Conscience means knowledge with or co-knowledge. Now, it's believed there was once a tribe in Africa that had had an unusual but highly effective way of determining if one was guilty. The crime had been committed. They would bring in the, sus- the suspects. They would line them up, and they would take a hot knife that had been torched by fire, and they would touch the tongue of each suspect with that hot knife. If there was saliva on the tongue, then the hot knife would not produce much pain. 
However, the opposite was also true. If there was not much saliva on the tongue, then the tongue, the, the hot knife would penetrate and stick into the tongue, creating a searing burn on the tongue. The tribe believed that a sense of guilt would cause the person's tongue to be dry. Thus, it was an effective tool to determine if someone was guilty. So they believed that the making of the dry mouth, if we could put it that way, was the conscience, was the work of the conscience in the person. What's what's our point? Well, in like manner, our consciences bear witness to who we really are on the inside. 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 2. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits, teaching of demons, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Fourth, the heathen are lost because their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Verse 15, even the unbeliever knows right from wrong, partly because of their conscience, which is given by God to everyone. The unbeliever, while they have conflicting thoughts due to a conscience, nevertheless still choose to do wrong, which accuses them and makes them guilty. Well, what will happen then? In verse 16, Paul writes, On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. There may be secrets that you have kept hidden from others, but they are never kept from God. In fact, what you hold as secrets are laid bare before God Almighty just as your sinful acts of commission are. The day is coming when God will judge the secrets of man. This also gets at our motives. What are our secret motives for doing good works? Is it to please God? Is it to please man? Is it for self-advancement? Is it for God-advancement? God reads the heart, and He sees what man does not see. Well, Paul then turns his attention to the Jew, the religious person of Paul's day. And before you say to me, well, now, Kevin, this is talking about the Jews, so how does it relate to me? Well, the reason I said, hey, the Jew was the religious person of Paul's day, who are the religious people of our day? It's us. It's also the charismatic, the Baptist, the Presbyterian, the Methodist, uh, the people that are going to church. And he calls us out in this next saying, in this next section, saying that if we rely upon the law and even boast in God, teaching others to do the same, but are not living in a way that is consistent with what we are telling others and teaching others, then we are in trouble. In fact, he goes so far as to say in verse 24 that the very name of God that we teach and preach will be blasphemed among others because we are not living in a way that supports and upholds what we believe and are teaching. Well, the first part of verse 17, notice, deals with the fact that the Jews took pride in their heritage. If you call yourself a Jew is how he starts. 
Now the Jews, to be sure, had endured bondage and oppression from the Gentiles for hundreds of years, but they took great pride in their heritage, in their culture, in their upbringing. And let me just make a side note. Who better to write this than Paul himself, right? Who was a zealot Jew. But they placed their hope, the Jews placed their hope in their heritage rather than in God himself. The same could be true of some today. What do we tend to place uh, emphasis on? Is it a certain family that we were born into? I bear this last name, and so I have these certain rights and privileges. Many people believe that they are Christians merely because they were born into a Christian family. Many in some European countries believe they are Christians simply by their national heritage. Some in the Middle East believe because they're not Muslim, well, they have to be Christian. What's not the case? Being a Christian is far more than not being something else. It's not accurate to claim Christianity just because of your upbringing or heritage. We have to claim it for ourselves. As parents, we can't can't presume our children who are being raised in a Christian home in a faithful gospel-preaching church are going to automatically be saved. We have to evangelize our children. We have to call them to repentance. And we have to persist and persevere in it. They must make their faith their own. And when I teach the communicants class, we hit that hard. Because in many cases, these children are being well-taught, raised in Christian homes, sitting under great preaching of the Word of God. But they've got to take that faith and they've got to make it their own so that it'll be genuine, so that it'll last, so that they will last, so that they will persevere, so that they will glorify God in all their days. Well, in verses 18 through 20, Paul deals with the fact that the religious elite had certain responsibilities and privileges. He says in these verses, the Jews know God's will. They approve of what's excellent. They're a guide to the blind, a light to those in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, and a children's teacher. It all sounds really good so far, right? Then he drops the hammer. Verses 21 through 23, Paul condemns the Jews for what? Essentially not practicing what they're preaching. And he addresses four of the Ten Commandments actually here. He's condemning those of us today. Perhaps in today's culture in the American church who claim to be Christian but are not living according to our calling given us by our almighty God. Let's look at these individually. In the latter part of verse 21, Paul asked the question, while you preach against stealing, do you steal? The Jews, of course, would have answered the question, I don't steal. I'm not taking, I'm not walking into someone's personal property and taking that which is not mine. Remember, however, the Jews were concerned about the external not the internal. However, God sees the heart. And that's what Paul's getting at here. He's concerned about the heart of the matter too. The Westminster Larger Catechism is helpful here. Question 142, what are the sins forbidden in the Eighth Commandment? The first part of it lists offenses such as theft, robbery, kidnapping, receiving anything stolen, removing landmarks even, withholding from our neighbor what belongs to him, But then it also says this, covetousness, inordinate prizing and affecting worldly goods, 
distrustful and dis- distracting cares and studies and getting, keeping and using them, envying is even breaking this commandment. So that when we break the eighth commandment, we're not only taking from others, but we're also uh, depriving ourselves of what the Lord would have us. We steal from God when we fail to render Him worship and put the cares of the world above His concerns. We steal from an, an employer when we don't give 100% while on the clock. Maybe it's taking personal phone calls. Maybe it's leaving early. We steal if we sell something for more than it's worth. If you're an employer, you steal from your employees. If you don't provide a safe working environment or you don't provide an honest, fair wage. We steal when we borrow from our neighbor without returning. We even steal from ourselves when we waste our time or our gifts or our resources. Well, in the next verse, Paul moves from stealing to adultery. Verse 22, you who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? Again, the Jews would have understood adultery to mean not committing a sexual offense against one's neighbor. What commandment is Paul dealing with here? It's the seventh commandment, right? The seventh. Larger Catechism 139, listen. What are the sins forbidden in the seventh commandment? Adultery, fornication, rape, incest, sodomy, all unnatural lust. Of course, the Jews would have said, I'm good with that. Amen to that. I haven't done any of that. But then listen to the next part of the answer to that question. Also includes all unclean imaginations, thoughts, purposes, affections, all corrupt or filthy communications or listening thereunto, wanton looks, impudent or light behavior, immodest apparel. The Jews were in fact guilty as charged. Notice that we too break this commandment when we give a second lustful glance, when we have unclean thoughts, when we have inappropriate communications either verbally or digitally through text or email, when we flirt with the opposite sex, even when we dress immodestly, fathers in the room of children and teens, that are living in this um, sexualized culture, we have to be aware of this and realize that we are contributing to breaking this commandment if we're allowing even immodest dress. We have to be careful. And again, it's not just about the outward. That's what the Jews were, were concerned about, right? But it is more concerned about what it represents as well inwardly. Well, in regards to adultery, we looked at this last year in a previous study on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, you heard what it said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, what? Everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart, Matthew 5, 27 through 28. And so what he's saying here is that lust is the equivalent. It is the same as adultery, just as anger is the same as murder. In the next part of this same verse, verse 22, Paul writes, You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? <clears throat> we understand here that Paul is really referencing the first two commandments. The first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, Exodus 23. 
This commandment deals with the object of our worship. There's plenty of things in our lives that are important, right? Our jobs, our families, wife, uh, children, all those things are so very important to us. I'm not saying they're not important. But when any one of those people or any one of these things becomes more important than God, then we are idolaters. John Stott once said, in order to keep this commandment, would be to see all things from his, that is God's point of view, and do nothing without reference to him, to make his will our guide and his glory our goal. Well, the second commandment, uh, quickly, Exodus 20, verses 4 through 6, doesn't really deal with the object of our worship, but it deals with the manner in which we worship, which is also part of what uh, Paul's talking about here. It means we need to be extremely careful in how we come to God in worship, seeking to do that which will please Him and be reverent. You know, we don't come on Sunday morning to high-five God. We come on Sunday morning to bow at His feet in humble adoration and in absolute awe at what He has done, what He is doing, and what He will do. Well, what's the result of the Jews teaching one thing and living another? That's contrary to what they're teaching. I'll conclude with this, Romans 2.24. The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Remember, this is not just the Jews living paradoxical lives. It's also us. When we say one thing and we live in another, we're blaspheming the very name of God. And we are, honestly, y'all, we are leaving the world utterly confused about what it even means to be a Christian. And dare I say, this is where we're at in this postmodern, broad, evangelical, humanistic, secular society. We say one thing, we live another. We go to church on Sunday, but we live like the world on Monday. And what I'm saying here is that we are going to sin. When we sin, we've got to repent. But there has to be a biblical congruency between how we're living and what we believe to be true. You know, Paul's whole outline in Romans, the first 11 chapters, are his indicatives. God is saying, this is who I am. This is what I'm doing. This is what I will do. And then in verses or chapters 12 through 16, it's the imperatives. It's now in light of who you know me, who you, what you know about me to be true. Now this is how we go and we live. And we live productive, fruitful, God-honoring lives. Because why? Because of what he's revealed himself to be in the first 11 chapters. We see a little bit of a glimpse of that here in chapter 2. This is what God's doing. This is what He's done. This is what He will do. I love the, this, uh, the sentence is that our orthopraxy has to match our orthodoxy. What does that mean? It just means what we're doing should match what we believe to be true about God. And so I don't want you to leave here today feeling, woe is me. Sometimes our hearts and our consciences need to be pricked, Right? But the good news is this, for those that are in Christ Jesus, we have the very help of the Holy Spirit 
who helps us in our time of weakness and who helps us match up that orthodoxy and orthopraxy, who helps us by His grace to live lives that are honoring and pleasing to Him. Let's pray for that. God in heaven, we are grateful. We're so grateful for who You are, for who You reveal Yourself to be. We would be utterly lost without You. So, Father, would you really do a transforming work in each one of our lives? Help us not just to hear the Word. Oh, how important that is. But then help us by the help of the Holy Spirit and by your wonderful grace to us to live lives that are pleasing to you. And, Father, in so doing, would you cause our lives to be a bare testimony to your faithfulness? that you might give us opportunity, yes, to evangelize to the lost, that people would be saved. In Jesus' name, amen.